All right, everybody. Please take a seat. Thanks again for being here today on this wonderful Mother's Day. So if you've been here the past couple of weeks, you know that we're going through a series right now called Prodigal God. Um, it's kind of being led by Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God. If you haven't read that, I encourage you to read it. But this is sermon number three. And we've seen in the first couple sermons that this story is actually not about one son, as we know it as the prodigal son, but two sons and a father. And the younger son, through which most of us know the name prodigal son, is a son that leaves and then comes home. And home is this really powerful concept for us. It evokes a lot of emotion and a lot of memory. Smells are one of the most powerful things that take us back into memories of home. Maybe you're driving home from college back and it's fall break and you're driving home and you roll the windows down at night and you smell the leaves as you're pulling up to your parents' house. Or it's summer break and you got the windows down and the hot winds hitting your hair as you drive down that old familiar road. Windows down because your AC's broke and you didn't fix your AC because you're broke. <laughs> um, and like these memories of home, whether it's the smells, I mean, a food, like going home to a, a home-cooked meal. A lot, these are things that we all remember. Such a wonderful thing, celebrating with friends and family, just a delicious meal. And you're like, Control-C, Control-V. Like, give me more of this, you know what I mean? And um, those smells and those memories of home remind us. And uh, this idea of home is all over uh, literature and music. Um, and, and movies, too. Like, a lot of us think of the Shire with Lord of the Rings, and it's this wonderful, quaint little place that nobody wants to really leave because it's so wonderful. Um, but, you know, what's interesting about that is the kind of, like, obviously, J.R.R. Tolkien, Tolkien made those, those books, but then Peter Jackson made the movies, and he actually was from New Zealand. And when Peter Jackson was growing up, he was growing up in New Zealand, and he envisioned, as he read Tolkien's books, he envisioned that one day he would retell the story on the screen. And... This is a picture of New Zealand, just in case you're guessing. It's not a random green picture. Um, but when we see the Shire that he creates in the movies, we're actually seeing somebody's vision of their home, their idealized vision of their home, Peter Jackson's. Um, it's also in music all over the place, right? John Denver, who is like the John Mayer of the 60s and 70s. My wife was like, he's not the John Mayer of the 60s and 70s. I was like, well, he's a dude singing on a guitar who is like really popular, so that's why he's the John Mayer. But anyway, John Denver sings all about Colorado and his home, sings about Aspen, right? It's such a powerful memory for him that he can't help but write a bunch of songs about it. Tupac, in his song, Dear Mama, he sings about being home, and then his mom comes home from work, and she'd cook him a meal. All over music, and all over literature, and just we feel this intense power of home, right? It's, a, it's such a longing for us, but it's also, along with these idealized, positive memories, we're never really satisfied as well, because Home is also mixed in with brokenness. For a lot of us, our families, we, even if they get along, there's always conflict. There's always conflict in families. And maybe in the holidays, maybe some of you enjoy the holidays. For a lot of people, the holidays are a time of mourning because it's a reminder for them. And so in, mixed in with all these positive memories of home, there's also this longing, this brokenness that we see that we, that we wish wasn't there. And so we ask ourselves this question. Why do we long for home so deeply, yet always seem to be looking for it? Is it just because we all saw the movie Homeward Bound growing up? Two dogs and a cat? <laughs> Why do we long for home so deeply, yet always seem to be looking for it? And Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, speaks about home. 
And it also speaks about being away from home, exile. It speaks about both those things, and it gives us a vision to what could be and what will be and what should be. Luke 15. So let's read it again here. This is the parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15, we're in the CSB version, chapter 15, 11 through 32. Here it is. He also said, a man had two sons. This is Jesus telling the parable. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he went up. Uh, So he got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving for you, slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So one of the major arcs of the story is the younger brother, right? That's honestly how most of us title the story, the prodigal son. He's one of the key characters in the story. And what does he do? He goes away, but then he comes home. But this theme that we see this exile of the younger son, walks himself into exile, and then homecoming, is a theme that's all throughout the Bible. And Jesus is tapping into that theme when he tells the story to the people that are listening to him. And really what this is, the story is a microcosm. The younger brother is a microcosm for us. It's paradigmatic. It's an example of all of humanity. All of us, like the younger brother, have wandered into exile, Jesus is implying here. And... Uh, Just like with the first two sermons, we're going to see a little bit how the context tells us what Jesus is trying to, it gives us the full meaning of what Jesus is intending to demonstrate with the story of the prodigal son. So the first question that we ask ourselves, where do we see exile in this story? 
Where do we see exile in this story? Here's the first place. In the self-determination of the younger brother. Look at what he says. Give me the share of the estate. Give me what's yours, Father, because I want your stuff, not you. Then he gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country. He gets his father's stuff and he leaves. He goes into what we see as this kind of time of exile, deep suffering and longing, right? It's self-determination. The younger brother wants to do his own path. He doesn't want to be under the father's authority. He wants to make his own decisions with his father's stuff. He doesn't want to be, have his, the bumpers and the guidelines that his father gives him because he thinks he knows better than the father. He thinks he knows what's going to give him fulfillment. But look, we've all done this. There's nobody in here who has not done this. Look, we know this from the first couple pages of the Bible. Humanity enters into exile. Literally, we don't make it a few pages before we do this. Adam and Eve in the garden rebel and sin against God and go their own way. They think they know better than the God that loves them. We see it in Israel, right? That whole, like a giant chunk of the Old Testament story of Israel, right? God brings them out of Egypt and then takes them into the promised land. And what do they do? Whatever they want. And they go into exile with Babylon, these foreign nations, Persia, Assyria. Giant chunks of the prophets are dedicated to talking just about that, just about that exile, but also hope of a homecoming. The Bible is filled with exile and homecoming, and prodigal son is no different. We, uh, and again, we have not escaped this. We have all together turned aside from God and not sought him and said to him, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I think I got a better way. I'm going to try this, God. I'm going to try this out and go my own way. Self-determination. We see this uh, in, a, in, a, in the purest form, honestly, in some ways, with children. Um, you know, when kids are like, kids are like, uh, I, I want to do it my way. Let me do it. Let me try that. Let me do it, right? Like if you're outside on the grill and you're like firing, getting ready to fire up the grill, and your kid comes out, he's like, hey, I want to do that. And you're like, mm, well, I mean, okay, Here, here's how you do it. Do this, do this, do this, and this. And they walk up, they're spinning knobs, gas is pouring out of it. They click something, this fireball goes off, they're jamming their hand in the grate trying to find stuff. And it's like, yo, they don't actually, they, don't, they, they think that they know what they're doing. But it's not, like they're, it's not like they're coming in being like, hey, Dad, let me tell you something. There's a lot that you don't understand about meat chemistry. Let me show you how it's really done. Take a seat, right? That's not like the kid just wants to do what he wants. That's what we see in children. But we're no different as adults. You don't grow out of that. You just get smarter about it. Let's get more sophisticated and hide it, right? Um, and so we need to ask ourselves this question just personally. Where have I self-determined and decided that my way is better than God's way, like the younger brother? Where have I looked at God and said, yeah, I hear you, but I'm going to do this. We need to ask ourselves this. This is what, one of the things that the story is drawing out of us. It's asking us to ask ourselves, where have we walked away from what God has called us to, to do what we want? Uh, maybe for some of you, this is money. You know that the word of, of God calls us into generosity, tells us that all money is his. You know that it says that, but you say, mm, and we give nothing. And we say, yeah, but I think that I'm going to be more fulfilled if I just spend it on whatever I want and my giving is this. Maybe it's money and that just wells up inside you as your own self-determination of what's yours, right? Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's, here's a good one, ready? Sabbath. You know that the Bible teaches 
that God made the Sabbath for man to delight in. But you say to yourself, yeah, you know what? I'm going to try working wall to wall, though. I'm going to build no margin into my schedule because I think that that is what's going to enrich me. I think that that is what is going to take me to where I need to go. My goals, what I'm trying to do. No Sabbath, wall to wall, hustle day and night. You see this in a lot of work culture these days. Even Elon Musk has come out and said stuff like, you're not working 110 hours a week, you're not going to change the world. The guy is clueless about how God has designed people. Clueless about that. You see this all over social media, too. This wasn't in my sermon. I'm just thinking of this now that I'm sitting here. You see this all over social media, too. People coming out and being like, oh, you got to hustle. You got to grind. You got to stay and come in morning and night. First one there, last one to leave. Look, God is a hard worker, right? Jesus come in, comes in and demonstrates to us what hard work is. But that's not the point of life, y'all. Where have you self-determined that you're just going to ignore Sabbath? You're going to ignore rest. You're going to ignore that because you think that's what's going to enrich you. What is it for you? Maybe it's a tough conversation. Maybe it's a tough conversation where you know that you need to have this conversation, whatever it is. Maybe it's sharing the gospel. Maybe it's uh, a rebuke. Maybe it's just even encouragement. You're nervous about that. Maybe it's a tough conversation. You know God wants you to draw that into you, but you're like, ugh, you know, it'll just, it'll settle. It'll, it'll work itself out. And we don't step into that. We don't step into that. Jesus is reminding us with the younger brother that we all have walked away from him, that we all have self-determined in our own way. And he's inviting us to ask ourselves what that is for us. He's inviting us to ask ourselves. Here's the second one. Where do we see exile in the story? Here's the second one. In our needs and longings. Look at what happens to the younger son in verse 16. He longed to eat his fill, but no one will give him anything. Our needs and our longings. This younger brother's self-determination and captaincy of his own life, he wants to be the captain of his own ship, has led him into a place of need and longing. And there's not one of us that can't, that can't empathize with that, that hasn't felt that, that hasn't felt longing in some place in our life or need in some place in our life. And look, it's the same with suffering. We have suffered like the younger son. And look, whether your suffering is because of sin you've committed or just part of the brokenness of the world, there's both kinds of suffering out there. We've felt both. All of us have, right? Um, but the younger son comes home. He doesn't stay in exile. The younger son comes home. That's where we see exile in the story, in self-determination of the younger brother and in these needs and longings that we feel. So, what is it? That brings us home. Look at what it is for the younger brother. Verse 17. How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? He's sitting there in the mire, and he remembers his father's house. He remembers what he came from. It's the memory of his father's house that draws him home. Right? And this, but this, look, this younger son's departure, leaving home, is paradigmatic for those of us who have put our faith in Christ and also those who haven't. Both groups of people can see ourselves in the younger son. If you have put your faith in Christ, you know that you still sin. You still wander away from God and what he's called you to do. We all wander, but it's the memory of who God is. People in our lives that, God, that remind us of what he's called us to. They remind us of his free gift of grace, the gospel that draws us back in. That's what draws back to the Father. If you, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, this feels like felt need. 
and the longing that we were talking about before. And as you think about your life and the good things that have happened and the bad things, you long for a home that won't let you down. You long for a place where all those needs are satisfied and question, why is it that this world is so broken? Why is it this way? That's what it feels like. So what is it that brings us home? It's the memory of the Father's house. Here's the second thing. The love of the Father. Look at verse 20. I gave this its own slide. But while the Son was still a long way off, his Father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's literally describing the Father as watching the horizon for us. How else is he going to see him when he's a long way off? Because he's watching the horizon for the younger son who's left home. Literally watching the horizon. He runs to him. The son hasn't even said anything yet. Hasn't confessed. I mean, the father doesn't know what he's going to say. Maybe he's going to be like, hey, remember that time I took your inheritance? I've been killing it, and now I'm way richer than you. Like, who knows what he's going to say? But the father doesn't care. He runs. And... And embraces him, although it does, the text does give us a hint of what's going on here because it says he was filled with compassion. What is compassion? It's an empathy for somebody's suffering. Why does the father feel compassion when he sees the son? He feels compassion, he feels empathy. I don't see any other explanation other than because the son is torn up and the son looks like he's been in exile. I don't know why else, why else Jesus would say that the father was filled with compassion. He runs to him, throws his arms around him, and kisses him before he can even say anything. Look at the intentionality behind Jesus' words. He could have described the Father in a lot of different ways. He had the whole universe open to him in describing his Father. But he describes him as watching the horizon and running to his younger son. Because apparently, this is how the Father feels about us prodigal exiles. Apparently, this is how he feels. And you know, if there's any moment where the father can bring the son in when he comes home and be like, if there's any moment that's ever been more appropriate for him to be like, hey, bud, see, I told you. I told you that that wasn't going to work out for you. I love you. Come on in. We're going to talk about what's next. Come on. I, but I told you. Has there ever been a moment where he can say that more? He just blew his inheritance and messed up bad and came home in some type of rags or something because he feels empathy for him. That's not what he says. That's not what the Father says to him. Apparently, because that's who God is. Apparently, that's who Jesus' is Father is. He's not the God of I told you so. Even though many of us, like the older brother in the story, feel like he's like that. Will you let Jesus, will you let Jesus come and tell you what his dad's like? Will you let him do that? Look, when is the last time that you felt the forgiving embrace of this father like this. And look, if you're a Christian, a, the father who acts like this doesn't just want this to happen once. When was the last time that you sat with God and felt this from him? When was the last time? You know what's hidden here? Interestingly, what's hidden here in the joy of the father is deep pain. You're like, what, how? Because any father that acts like this when his son comes home 
was utterly destroyed when he left. Any father who acts this way when he sees his son, there's no way that on the other side of that coin he wasn't completely torn apart when his son takes his stuff and leaves him. And look, sometimes we have this deistic view of God. Deism is just this view of God where, yeah, there's God, but he's not a part of the world anymore. He's kind of like made it, spun it off, and he's just, he's, he's inaccessible, he's uncaring, he's not involved. That's the God of deism. And it's, a lot of us honestly feel that way about God, that he's unemotional and uncaring. But look, how emotional are you? Think the one that created you doesn't have that kind of emotion? Look, we have people have tried to recreate this emotion. The closest we've gotten, this emotion, the closest we've gotten is Siri, okay? That's the closest that we can get. And we tell Siri, and we joke with Siri, and we troll her, and we say, hey, Siri, I wish you were a real person so that we could actually be friends. You know, whatever you say, the things that you say to Siri, right? And Siri's like, oh, I love you, or whatever. You know, she can't, she's not, she doesn't have emotion. She's like, there's, there's a milkshake down the road filled with carbs. It'll make you feel better. You know what I mean? Like, she can, that's the best that we can do as people. As humanity, the best that we've created with emotion is Siri. The, the distance between Siri and us is vast from an emotional standpoint. The distance between us and God, emotional capacity, is infinite. It's literally infinite. It's literally unfathomable. And for, the, and for Jesus to describe his father as running to his son like this, and the implied deep pain that God feels when we walk away from him, we can't even map it. It's unapproachable. It's so vast. It's vaster than anything you've ever conceived. Literally infinite. This is the heart of the Father. And that Jesus saying, this is what my dad's like. This is what he's like. And again, the only way that we know what this Father is like is because Jesus is telling us. Because of what Jesus does. Again, this story is pointing to Jesus because Jesus went to exile too. Only he didn't deserve it. Henry Nouwen, who is a great and wonderful theologian that I just discovered last week, says it this way. I'm touching here the mystery that Jesus himself became the prodigal son for our sake. He left the house of his heavenly father, came to a foreign country, gave away all that he had, and returned through his cross to his father's home. All of this he did, not as a rebellious son, but as an obedient son sent out to bring home all the lost children of God. Jesus, who told the story to those who criticized him for associating with, associating with sinners, himself lived the long and painful journey that he describes. This is Jesus, the one who walks into exile for us. But look, we, um, we understand that, uh, we understand that the, the Bible promises, Jesus himself promises us that one day he will make all things right. One day he'll wipe away every tear. One day he will get rid of all that and usher us into eternal joy with him. Which is wonderful, and it should characterize us, and it should affect us. But how do we have that? How do we get that now? How do we feel that peace that Jesus talks about, that homecoming, that feeling of the younger brother getting wrapped in the arms of his father? How do we feel that now? How do we receive the comfort of our homecoming now? Uh, the first week, 
we talked about the older brother, and he, you know, he, he comes out, he's really mad, and the father comes, at him, comes out to him and speaks tenderly to him. And the, and the older brother hears his voice. And this week we see with the younger brother, the father runs out to him and wraps him in his, in his embrace and speaks to him tenderly and invites him into the feast. The father speaks to both of these sons. So how do we receive the comfort of our homecoming now? Here's how. By hearing and memorizing God's voice in his word. How else is he going to speak to you? Besides his word. There's other ways. But that's going to be the main way. In his word. Maybe, uh, maybe recently you've come into a, uh, a place of influence. Maybe God has blessed you with promotion, leadership. You have more power now. You have more influence now. How are you going to let God guide you with that? How are you going to let God steward, help you steward that new influence and power unless you're sitting and you're spending time with him and you come across things like 2 Samuel 5.12, talking about King David, when he gets that from God. And it says, Then David knew that the Lord had made him king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And you come across that and you think, Oh, God is one of the reasons that God gives me this authority that I have, this opportunity to lead, this opportunity of influence, is to bless people. How are you going to let God guide you with that unless you give, him the, you give yourself the chance to stumble across his words in 2 Samuel? Maybe, again, going back to the money thing, because we struggle with this every single week. Money is always an issue. Maybe you're filled with anxiety over not having enough. Maybe you just feel the greed welling up in your soul. Just not, you, you need more. You're trying to figure out how to get more. Or you're just worried about it. You're not worried about where it's going to come from next. How are you going to let God comfort you and change your heart unless you're sitting with him at night in his word? And you come across things like Proverbs 30, where the, where the writer says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with the food that is needful for me. How are you going to let God guide you into how we should view and handle money unless you give him the chance to speak to you in places like that? Um, uh, the other day I was uh, on the couch, and this was a while back. My wife walks in, and she's like, hey, babe, I think I'm pregnant. And I was like, and again, maybe perhaps for most of us also, there have been many times in our lives up to that point where we maybe thought we were pregnant, but we weren't. So I was like, are you sure, babe? Are you sure, pregnant? Have you, have you tested it? She was like, no. And I was like, well, okay. Well, let's just wait until you test it then. And she was like, okay. She walks away. And then I sit down on the couch, and I'm in Ecclesiastes 11. Literally look down at the page, and I come across Ecclesiastes 11.5, and it says this. In the same way that you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. And I was like, wait, babe, why do you think you're pregnant? <laughs> and here's the thing, though, about that. That verse is not about me. That verse is not about my wife. But how are we going to let God speak his truth to us in a timely way unless we're sitting with him in the cool of the morning? Unless we're sitting with him, paging through his word and letting him take things to us and speak things to us when we need it. And that was just, you know, I mean, she was pregnant, by the way. She was. And that was just awesome. 
coming across a passage where God's like, by the way, I make babies, and you don't know how I do it. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing. But you know what? We lost that little guy seven months later. We lost it. was this little man's older brother. And we lost him. And look, in the agony of loss, if you've struggled with miscarriage, infertility, the pain of losing a loved one, just brutal medical news, how are you going to let God wrap you in his embrace and tell you how he feels unless you're sitting with him in the tranquility of the night and you come across John 11 and you see Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the Bible. You say, wait, why did he weep? And you read through the narrative and you realize it's because he lost a friend. And he's staring death in the face and feeling it in agonizing pain. How are you going to let the Lord, Jesus, the God of the universe, wrap you in his arms the way that he does the younger brother? Unless you sit there and let him speak that to you. And God comforted us in that loss. And God wants to comfort you in that loss. And you know what else he says in that passage? He raises Lazarus from the dead and fills us with hope because he shows us that he's Lord over death. Death bows to him. And he shows us that in John 11. We also stumble across places like uh, Psalm 139, 13, and beyond. And it says this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that had been formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. If you've felt the pain of searing loss, you have kids and you're worried about them, these shootings that keep happening in the state, you're sending your kids off to school and you're worried, you're pregnant, you don't know what's going to happen. How are you going to let God comfort you and come across passages like Psalm 139 where you see that God delights in life? God delights in life and even though you can't control your situation, even though you don't know what's going to happen, you know that God delights in life. <clears throat> Sorry. You know that God delights in life. And you see and you realize, whose hands can you trust them with more? What better hands are there? Whose hands can you trust your children with more, your loved one with more, yourself with more, other than the God who creates babies and knew us before we even entered into the universe. Who can you trust more? Lastly, if you're filled with shame and you've done something that you shouldn't have done and you look back on parts of your life and you agonize over it, brokenness of relationships, just horrible decisions, just you look at yourself and you feel hatred. You look at yourself and you just... Maybe you're tempted with suicide. Maybe it's that bad. How are you going to let God tell you how he feels about you? Unless you're sitting with him in the cool of the morning, memorizing his promises, and you come across Luke 15. 
And you see, while the sun was still a long way off, while the sun was still a long way off, there's a reason that the art in the history of the world that has painted all the art across civilization that's painted the story of the prodigal son paints that moment. There's a reason that that's the scene gets painted. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran to him. And like we talked about last week, Jesus came after you and pursued you before you ever sought him. He went to the cross knowing that you, what you were going to do before you did it. And we know that he takes our shame away. We look at the cross and we realize, we look at the way Jesus describes his father and we remember the teller of the story and what he went and did and we remember, you take my shame away. You came after me knowing what I was going to do. So let God say those things to you. Let him speak to you in a timely way. Let him comfort you and convict you and encourage you and all those things when you're sitting with him in his word and committing it to memory. How do we receive the comfort of our homecoming now by hearing God's voice like the two brothers do by hearing God's voice and sitting with him and committing it to memory so his promises flow through and out and around us so why do we long for home so deeply and yet always seem to be looking for it this is the original question we asked ourselves. Here's the reason. Because God put eternity in your heart. Because God put eternity in your heart and created you to live with him in his home. And we feel this kind of tension of feeling that now but not yet here. But he promises that one day that'll change. And he'll wipe away every tear and draw us into him so that we can enjoy him for eternity. That's why. Why do we long for a home so deeply it always seemed to be looking for it? Because he's created us to be with him. And that's his call to us as he draws us in. So when we take communion, the, the sacrament of communion gets instituted when Jesus is in the upper room before he goes like, to the cross and that whole part of the end of his story happens. He's in the upper room with his disciples. And he says, hey, do this in remembrance of me. Take this wine Take this bread and do this in remembrance of me. That's where the sacrament of communion comes from. So let's do this today and remember who he is. Remember how he describes his father. Remember the son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, and what he was willing to do to bring us home. Let's remember that today. Will you pray with me? God, God, I thank you for the way that you used the younger son to show us the way that we have turned from you, to remind us, to take us back throughout the rest of the Bible, and we see the way that humanity is altogether turned aside from you. And Jesus, we thank you for the way that you draw out the ways in which we have self-determined and gone our own way. And Jesus, we thank you for the hope that you give. You told the story to give us hope, God to give us a good picture of reality, and to give us hope. And we ask, Lord, that... Uh, we ask, Lord, that you remind us every week of who your Father is. We ask that you bring to our memory 
Lord Jesus, you said that your Holy Spirit will bring to our memory the things that you have said. And we ask that you do that for us this week and this month and the rest of our lives. We thank you for who you are. And and we thank you for coming after us. We pray that you take our shame and heal us, wrap us up, take our fear, and let us sit with you in the cool of the morning and delight in who you are as we hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.